You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Your turn. Well, I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. Um... Lived most of my life in the Northeast. <laughs> Stuck it out in New York City for a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, went to China for a couple of years. Opened a punk bar. In China? In China. Uh, came back to New York. Worked like a slave. Was miserable. Drank a lot. Stopped drinking. Moved to Rhode Island. Went to graduate school. Made the decision that I was never going to work again. Became a writer. Uh and went to California to do that, broke, and now I'm here. <laughs> that <laughs> obviates the entire... <laughs> okay, yeah. I guess your level, her levels are good? <clears throat> Creative work of value is possible only when there's resistance, either from the medium in which the work is performed or the audience at whom it is aimed. But since... Okay, uh, why don't you read? Are you going to talk that fast during the interview? No. This oh, okay, is, that okay. was no, no, Sorry. <laughs> that was my test run. It's okay, a quote good. from Flannery O'Connor and Stanislaw oh, Lim. So. Jesus. All right. Sorry okay. about that. Okay. So I'm going to read just the opening of the story called The Weirdos. On our first date, he bought me a taco, talked at length about the ancient theories of light how it streams at angles to align events in space and time, that it is the source of all information, determines every outcome, how we can reflect it to summon aliens using mirrored bowls of water. I asked what the point of it all was, but he didn't seem to hear me. Lying on the grass outside a tennis arena, he held my face toward the sun, stared sideways at my eyeballs, and began to cry. He told me I was the sign he'd been waiting for, and, like looking into a crystal ball, he'd just read a private message from God in the silvery vortex of my left pupil. I disregarded this and was impressed instead by the ease with which he rolled on top of me and slid his hands down the back of my jeans, gripping my buttocks in both palms and squeezing, all in front of a Mexican family picnicking on the lawn. Otessa Moshfeg has published stories in Paris Review, The New Yorker, and Granta. She's the author of a novella, McGlue, and a novel, Eileen, which was shortlisted for the 2016 Man Booker Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award and won the Penn Hemingway Award. Her new collection of short stories is Homesick for Another World. Thank you for joining me, Otessa. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. The opening you read from was a story called The Weirdos. Mm -hmm. I've heard many of your characters that you create in this book and in your other works described as being weird or on the edge. Mm -hmm. To me, they all seem like completely normal people. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> and, and But what I think you do is back in the 1930s or 40s, 
uh, junkie who was a writer wannabe came up with this idea. And that idea, he wrote, was a naked lunch, a frozen moment when everyone sees what is on the end of every fork. I could not help Hmm. but think of that kind of perception and that level of perception as I read your stories. I was thinking, uh, Otessa is taking that naked fork idea and looking at us in the 21st century. It's not such a pretty vision. (laughs) You know what's interesting? I'm very nearsighted, and I don't like wearing glasses. I didn't, furthermore, I didn't realize that my eyes look in two different directions, and I need prisms in the lenses of my glasses to get my eyes to see the same thing. Uh, I I figured this out just two years ago. Um, And I don't like wearing glasses and seeing things clearly. And I think, well, partly, partly it's because I like seeing the world in this murky haze. It so feels, do I. <laughs> it feels much more manageable, <laughs> and I can kind of project more onto it in ways I understand what what reality is. But then I start asking myself questions if what I'm seeing is real. So that's where a lot of my imagination rests, is, is what I am seeing real? And usually the answer is no, I'm totally delusional. Or no, there's a more interesting way of looking at it. And then, uh, you know, you talk about the like seeing everything on the tip of the fork. I get really close up to things and look at them um, kind of objectively, you know, like I, I look in at... In prose. In prose, yeah. And so I do write a lot about um, what, what might be unflattering to some, uh, to some characters, but which seems to me just accurate. You're working in what might be called a mundane Cronenberg body horror in that there's nothing unusual happening in any of your stories. There's no hint of anything particularly fantastic. But when you look at reality as closely as you look, it starts to look pretty terrifying. Yeah, I think it starts to look a little magical. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on which person the sto- the story is about. Like, for example, in The Weirdos, the boyfriend, who's a ridiculous person, also has these really interesting ideas about reality and space and time and ancient Egypt and light. And it seems to kind of be his, his spirit, part of his spiritual paradigm. Um, and so he, although it's a story about a, a, a woman in a, fake relationship with someone she doesn't like who and she stays with him I think out of laziness but it's also he's interesting he's talking about a, a way of looking at reality that seems so absurd that I think it creates possibilities for us to wonder if the way that we look at our reality is also absurd this brings us back to you taking off your glasses so you can project the world you would prefer to see. Exactly. As opposed to the, <laughs> your glasses reveal. Yes. Yes. And so that's, in a sense, you're both seeking the naked lunch moment and trying to prevent yourself from seeing it, which you don't let your readers off that easy. You get that language right in there. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to control it and manipulate it. And I think a lot about timing, mm-hmm. you know, and and 
I, I love, you know, I love stand-up comedy because it's so much about timing. And I think a lot about music when I'm writing, too. So it's not like I'm... I actually don't feel like a very visual person. Mm-hmm. Um, I score very low on those internet tests that test your ability to to see things um, with subtlety. I, I'm not very visual, but I think maybe because of that, I've had to overcompensate. And so when I describe things, I really get really close to them to describe them. Um, yeah. I. The first thing I encountered by you was this book, Eileen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a a passion these days, and there's always a, a passion for people who like uh, what are called unreliable narrators. I do not see Eileen as an unreliable narrator. In fact, I see her in many ways as almost too reliable. She's willing to tell you things from the very get-go that... There are paragraphs in this book. I would read this and, you know, that's a thought that's going to stick with me that I wish I could make go away out of my mm-hmm. brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that uh, she's trying to um, – she's so centered in, in the reality and the mundaneness of our own world. Talk about just – uh, creating that, finding that voice in the prose. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the first draft of Eileen was in third person. Oh, really? That's the, that is a... <clears throat> yeah, and for people who haven't read the book, the entire book is a sort of hint, like the, the entire thrust of the book is that you're inside the head of this woman named Eileen as she's looking back on her life uh, at a moment 50 years back. And it's and the book is really about what it's like to be inside this woman's head and hear her voice talking. So it ended up being a first person narrative. But when I wrote it at, at third person, um, I mean, I knew that it. I, when I finished, I knew that it was absolutely wrong. But I had captured a distance and a kind of sardonic or sarcastic uh, wit about what the story was, mm-hmm. you know, there's some judgment there. There's some self-ridicule or what, or what was just first ridicule or satire. Mm-hmm. And so when I rewrote it as a first-person narrative, I maintained this this, this self-referential, self-serious or, or self-satirical note. Um, and I think she is somebody who's going to tell you all the dirty stuff about what happened. But she's also someone who's going to tell you, I might not tell you the whole story. Or I might flub this a little bit, but at least I'm being honest about it. And, you know, so I I agree with you. She is reliable. She's not trying to trick us in any kind of um, invisible way. She is trying to manipulate the reader, but in a totally transparent way that just reveals more about her and the way that she wishes she could remember the story. (laughs) You know, and what's interesting, too, that's a book where there are two characters who are the same character but are very different and are constantly, you know, there's a tension back and forth between those. Did that come out of the, the person shift? Are you talking about Eileen and Rebecca? I, uh, no, Eileen and Eileen. Oh, you mean Eileen? 
the, as the narrator at age 74 and, and Eileen at 24. Yeah. Um, because she's constantly, she will talk about herself. Yeah. And I mean, it's an interesting uh, choice to make. Yeah. Why? Why did I do that? Yeah. Well, because I wanted, well, this was my first novel. Mm-hmm. And my thought about the novel was like, and a, a novel is so obviously made up. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's the whole <laughs> trick of the novel. Like, if it's good, you forget that somebody just made it up, you know. And so I was thinking a lot about the fictionality of things and how and the um, that in the history of the novel, there's been this certain tonality, a story storytelling tonality, uh, especially when it's a first person narrative where like, let me tell you about the time in my life where blah, blah, blah. And you can have like, you know, a lot of different styles of that. But I was thinking about that convention and I wanted to be able to use that convention in a way that would shock people into remembering both that this is a fiction and that it's actually a fiction about something very real and disturbing, which is I guess which is the the group of issues that are that I I was trying to deal with in the in the story like um personhood young and like uh coming of age in a in an abusive home uh alcoholism and abusive parenting um uh sexual abuse um children in prison you know <laughs> uh these these heavy things that I, I i knew i wanted in the book not a happy thought among them well well no but <laughs> you you still read it and you and i think that at well, mo- yeah, moments you can laugh you know it's like you, and because the whole point is it's just i think fiction is just a way of getting us to look at the things that we can if we if we were to look at them in reality we would probably have a nervous breakdown I mean, if we were really to take this on as a true story, um, it would be intolerable. You know, that's what one of the things that's interesting about Eileen and all the stories in Homesick for Another World. Um, this is a very interesting point you bring up because often um, in the world of genre fiction, one of the reasons many writers will write genre fiction is because they can use the conventions of the genre to take people out of the world and tell them things that they really don't want to hear. Broad Sterling famously, I can make Venusians and Martians say things that I could never have Republicans and Democrats say. Your fiction has all the feel of that fantastic fiction where you're externalizing things, only you're just, (laughs) you have not undergone that extra step of externalizing and transforming you just externalize them and say here it is yeah and here and here is the world that that looks totally familiar to you exactly and that's i think why it's interesting world (laughs) yeah well you know if you read this story um i mean the stories are mostly set in let's see new york city los angeles um Anonymous rural areas, either near Los Angeles or New York City. There's one story set in Boston. Um, there's one story set in central China. Mm-hmm. Um, and the environments that you encounter are... Oh, okay, I'm leaving out the last story, which is set in this kind of... It's the one story that's in sort of a fantasy, parable-esque 
world mm-hmm. that feels vaguely Eastern European, but seems to be happening in no time, um, outside of time, and there aren't any references to anything in our modern culture, not really. Right. Um, but so putting that last story aside, the environments of the stories, I hope, feel very familiar, mm-hmm. you know? And I think having these characters that are sort of explosively externalized <laughs> in this very familiar landscape is interesting. And then, you know, I, my hope, I think it's fun to just remember that when you're walking around, like you, when we walk around or go to the coffee shop, the person next to us is a complete freak. Even if they're dressed like everyone else, ordering the same Americano with room, everybody is a freak. I think that that's a, well, that's a a, a valid point. And, and I think that the world you create in the stories is is uh, engaging. I want to focus on one thing slightly that uh, your sense of humor is is really, really interesting because I found myself laughing the hardest at the things that were essentially not even as really funny. They weren't told as jokes. It was just, I was so shocked to see the string of words describing something accurately and concisely in a kind of bang, bang, bang mm-hmm. rhythm. It's the timing you talked about. Mm-hmm. That all of a sudden, I'm reading through, you know, a description of some set of action, and you describe something else, and I just can't. It's like an explosive bark or mm. something. Yeah. Th- I get lucky sometimes. <laughs> <coughs> I get lucky sometimes with with the words that occur to me. And sometimes when I'm writing, um, I'll, I'll know what a word is supposed to sound like. Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, it needs to sound like this. But it will be a non-word. It won't <laughs> exist, and and then I'll have to go find a word that. And it turns out that I, you know, it's a word that I knew vaguely, um, but I think a lot about the way things sound, and um, sometimes more, at first than the way th- than what they mean. Yeah. Well, that that goes to the joke aspect, yeah. and in a sense too, when you're externalizing something, you don't need to. The meaning is less important than the visual or audio flourish, as it were. Say that again. Sorry. When you're trying to externalize uh, or, or talk about something very unpleasant, like you know bowel movements or you know, uh, how, bowel, bowel movements are the most pleasant experiences. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, <laughs> a rash, granted, could be a little uh, itchy. But okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if bowel movements are pleasant, and I suppose I wouldn't, uh, I I wouldn't dispute that. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are they not uh, uh, an entire? Why is there not an entire genre devoted to them in the bookstore? Well, you know, let's start one. <laughs> I, think... <laughs> I think I think all three of my books have enough defecation in them that that it's a good start for a shelf. <laughs> books about excrement moving your bowels but you know it's just i i'm not actually obsessed with that no i don't I mean, think you are it's but just i think that it, it's such a part of the human experience that is so divorced from um like the civility of the society that we pretend to have so by talking about using the toilet i feel like i'm reminding myself and others that i'm a human being animal 
and that we should all remember that and that that is like the the essence of humility you know civilization is balanced upon a closed door and a good lavatory yeah the knife edge of civilization in many ways you know my favorite place to use the bathroom was in were were the latrines in china really and sometimes uh, Tell us about China and why you were there and how that relates to the story. You okay, wrote. well, briefly, I mean, I fell in love when I, at uh, in, with a uh, a guy in at the very beginning of the war uh, Which in Iraq. One? Okay, all right. So this was two thousand two three, mm-hmm. three ish. Um, we got got jobs over the internet teaching at a private university and on the outskirts of a huge metropolis in central China. And ended up doing that very weirdly for a year. That's a whole other story. Traveled a bunch. And then the next year ended up opening this uh, music venue for these indie bands in China that had no real other place to play. And it just so happened that the city we had moved to randomly had this underground punk scene, which was really fascinating. Wow, that's amazing. I never, I can't imagine uh, rock music in China, let alone an indie punk scene with uh, hidden clubs. Yeah, well, you know... They, they had to do something. Um, but about the latrines, there were several kinds of, of public toilets. Mm-hmm. And some of them were just these sort of, I don't know how to describe them. They were like tile rooms with, uh, how would you describe it? Tile rooms with some kind of low partitions, maybe, but it was all tile, and you would straddle a, uh, what would you call this? Like, if it goes like this, and there's, like, a river running through it. <laughs> a river running, uh, 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 uh. Like a stream. A aqueduct or something? Like, like, yeah, kind yeah. of like an aqueduct. Yeah. And you would just use the bathroom there and give a quiet to the woman who was uh, attending, and that was it. But... But usually it was, you know, if it was a public toilet with with a lot of latrines, there would be stalls. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there would be no doors on the stall. And something about using the toilet with stra- others um, without any fear or shame about what was coming out of me or the, the noises or this bladder uh, it was so revolutionary revolutionizing re- totally revolutionary what's the word <laughs> it Revol- revolutionizing it was so it was so here, scratch that it was so liberating mm-hmm. because having lived f- up until then in the United States i had been taught that everything that came out of my body was somehow disgusting whether it was snot spit earwax piss blood poop whatever, pus, like that's just, some, you know, if that's happening to you, you need to close the door and then do some deodorizing. <laughs> You've got a David Cronenberg movie happening right here. <laughs> so it was so joyous just to be able to squat and pee next to these women. And after a certain point, I just, even if there was a door on the stall, I just left it open. Wow. You know... <laughs> This is not what I thought we were going to be talking about, but it's an, it's a good memory. It makes me feel happy. Well, I think it's a big clue about what people might expect to find 
in your books. Yes. And I think also why we might find it. And it also explains why reading your books that when we ex- read one of these passages that's might be rather dire and not appropriate for polite company, so to speak, when we read those, I mean, it's just the sense of liberation, as it were, is is amazing. And that kind of that's what the humor does is it, you know, it gets us out of ourselves. Well, that's great to hear. Well, I should. I, I, but I do want to just say for anybody who's thinking that the book is just about using the toilet, that it's not just about oh, using no. the toilet. <laughs> there is a lot of other stuff happening in this um, short story collection. Right. So uh, well, don't be biased. <laughs> No, no, no. Well, let's talk about that. Um, in bettering myself, you, you, we have a teacher who, uh, who's greets us and says, "My students were all horrible at math. I got stuck with the dummies." Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, talk about you know uh, these characters you create are somewhat confrontational. Do you kind of have to rev yourself up into that confrontational? M- mood to, to do it or does it do you just kind of sit back more coolly and calmly like the Martians in H.G. Wells War of the Worlds regard us humans from afar well I I am always uh, kind of ready to confront something <laughs> it's just my general nature I'm usually bored a lot of the time so when I'm writing I try to be not bored by myself and by the people I'm writing about. But now, this is interesting because I would think that if you were bored, you might not write about the most mundane things in the world about people who, I mean, Eileen has a, has a, 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 Pretty interesting and well well turned thriller plot with a or with some you know a nice turn upside downs mm-hmm. uh, turnarounds, but the takeaway from that book is not that I just read a thriller. The takeaway from that book is, boy, I have just read a book about what it's like the human experience of the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, in in the short stories, you also focus on the stuff like you know. Uh, my uncle lived at the one off the 101. I stopped at Albertsons for detergent and Diet Coke. I mean, these are really mundane things. How is writing about that not uh do you like enter boredom, confront boredom to uh beat it with its own dead corpse? No, I don't think my characters are boring at all. Oh, I don't think they're so, boring. So but... if you have somebody who's fascinating you doing something mundane, mm-hmm. suddenly that mundane thing has this different resonance, you know? It's this like, is the magic reality you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, you know, we, we look at uh, celebrity magazines or whatever at the supermarket, and they're like pictures of Kanye West coming out of Starbucks. And suddenly, you know, that that kind of rips a hole in the texture of our reality, right? <laughs> I hadn't it's thought like, about that, but yes, it's that's like, true. you yeah. know... And and I think when you have an interesting uh, character being a real person in a story and then telling you about their day, things can have a different weight and a different and a, and a different uh, meaning altogether. I mean, the reason he stops at Albertsons on the way um, up to see his uncle is that his he wants to do his laundry there because he's broke and his uncle requested Diet Coke. 
And the next line that comes after that story is that he bu- he buys two cakes, and when he gets to his uncle's house, they eat each one entirely. His uncle gets rid of his through his colostomy bag, and the uh, protagonist vomits his up uh, in the midst of doing his laundry. And this is also a, a, a theme, anorexia. Yeah, eating disorders are, are, are bountiful in my work. Yeah. Uh, are, is this from personal experience? Totally. Totally. Oh. Per- personal experience, my experience of others, my experience of the, the, the world and the way that we um, deal with food and bodies and the way we, we think about things as objects outside of our own biology. Yeah. And I and I think that the, the you know, eating disorders and like ad- addictive behaviors and stuff, I'm 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 always fascinated by that because it's like those are the things that our people do people do to cope with a with a world that is um somehow unmanageable to them. But that coping thing ends up hurting them more than helping them and maybe pushing them even further or deluding them into thinking that the world is even more unmanageable than it is. It's so, not a delusion. After that kind of addiction, the world is more unmanageable. Uh, well, absolutely, but the world hasn't necessarily changed. No. You've just become crazy. <laughs> and the um, that's easier said than done. <laughs> that's actually no. That's actually easier done than one would might prefer to think. Yeah, but I'm interested in in writing about eating disorders because I think they've been handled really cheaply and mm-hmm. and and you know oh this is like a teenage girl's obsession with being skinny so that a boy will like her or something i mean it's just i i don't see eating disorders like that at all like the 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 first in eating disordered individual you encounter is in this story malibu that we were just talking about with mm-hmm. the uncle um about um a young man in hollywood who's obs- who's obsessed with his appearance and has bulimia and, um, you know, it's not something we encounter every day. But I think get, getting close to somebody and hearing them actually do that is it can feel really shocking and unbelievable. I mean, like, um, but the truth is that people are doing that all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I think we need I mean, not I'm not trying to normalize it and say it's OK, but I think that there shouldn't be a stigma around it. Um, you don't need to normalize it. It's already normal. Yeah, <laughs> nobody yeah, wants guess, to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody gets to talk about it. And, and especially li- the way that it's handled, I think, in literature is not uh, – it's, it's, it's so gendered mm-hmm. and seems really silly. It's like, I don't know. And the same I, – I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. But, you know, it isn't – I'm not um, like a passionate eating disorder uh, recovery activist or something. You know, no. I, I know that eating disorders are really complicated. I've had one since I was nine. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it's latent and I never think about it. And sometimes, you know, it'll come up and it'll be the it'll be in my face and I won't understand it. You know, in the same way that I, that I, I could you know pick up something else. But food is a very easy thing to use. You have to eat it every day or else you die. You know. It's it's a necessary addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk about the the relationships between uh, the parents and children mm-hmm. in, in the stories and, and in your books. Uh, not very good. Really? Yes. Oh well. 
Oh, right. I'm thinking of the the of the father and Eileen. Oh, he's, yeah. He's he's a wonderful character, I think. Oh, well, well, the parents and and Eileen are absolute monsters. Mm-hmm. You have a dead mother already mm-hmm. who seemed to have just given Eileen hell her whole life. Now you have this retired cop father, al- so alcoholic he thinks that there are people living in the walls. Yeah, the ghosts and ghouls yeah. waiting to get him. Yeah, and just treats Eileen like some kind of servant, but also weird f- friend, you know, somebody you can chat with and have aw- awful conversations with, or I don't know. Um, and then you have this other this other child in the story, the um, Lee Polk, the, the young, the teenage boy who's in prison mm-hmm. for having murdered his dad who had been raping him repeatedly and um, having a mother who had been complicit in the sexual abuse by giving him nightly enemas after dinner. I mean, these are not people that um, you want babysitting your children. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Uh, but you, I, I, I like that. You know, the one of the things about your characters is they seem to uh, uh, exist in an economic place that I can identify with. Mm-hmm. This is it's really rare. I think so many people either don't seem to have to work or they have glamorous jobs. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they're runway models and, and rocket scientists. And you mean in fiction? In fiction, not in your fiction. Your fiction mm-hmm. is like. A glass of cold water compared to the passion fruit nectar mm-hmm. <laughs> of much of what is uh, of what you can read, and for example, in uh, No Place for Good People, I, I really like that character who tells that story. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's sixty four. He's got just getting a new job, and so talk about picking people who, when you read about the short stories about them, they seem like kind of the margins of life, but Mm. as we read the story, we realize that this is what most people are like. This is the majority. This is not the minority. Right. I'm not choosing to write about anybody that exceptional. No, no, no. You're writing about, in a sense, the anti-exceptional. Right. What uh, Harlan Ellison called the great unwashed. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, and the the great unseen, really. Mm -hmm. And so, um, right, in No Place for Good People, you have this elderly uh, widower who, I think, takes this job, a part-time job, just out of um, loneliness, having retired. Mm -hmm. Um, And he ends up as the sort of guardian of these um, men in a facility, in in an expensive facility for people with um, developmental disabilities. So they get to know each other, and they're really they're fascinating people. And I, you know, and I didn't. I thought you did a great job of anti-romanticizing them. Uh, well, I did a little research about mm-hmm. developmental disabilities, and and found that these people are like the sweetest people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is, is because they they haven't been like tortured and brainwashed with the. Uh, the like the lie that the the bigger your ego the happier you're gonna be Mm -hmm. they're they're curious people they're sweet they seem really on they don't know better than to be honest a lot of the time and i love that 
they sort of trickle into this older man's life and show him something that he had been missing, you know, something about intimacy and trust and and honesty and, and his own prudence. I, I think that uh, for me, the the voice of the story and the kind of the raw friendliness that we find in it, I think is really interesting. Did you have to like pull stuff out when you write a short story like that? Does that do you say, okay, here's the character, go and just follow, riff, follow the guitar riffs, so to speak? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the voice of the narrator basically starts telling me what to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, in the Beach Boy, mm-hmm. uh, we have it's it. That's a a both. I think you know a, a beautifully written story, but really dark and and kind of terrorizing. Mm. So, talk about uh, creating. This, you know, uh, story of a man who loses his wife. Well, I wanted to write a story that really seemed like it could fit into the canon of American short story literature. Like <laughs> like something that sounded like a classic short story. Uh-huh. And so the, the story starts off with these three couples that are having dinner at their regular restaurant on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And you get to know them, and it's kind of funny. I mean, it's a little. I was thinking a lot about Woody Allen mm-hmm. when I when I started writing this, and um, it turns out that one of the couples that you end up focusing on have just been back from an island getaway to celebrate their thirtieth anniversary or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple hours after dinner, the woman drops dead, uh, which I think is maybe not the expected way you. <laughs> the story seems to be headed. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, we're left with this uh, widower in the wake of having lost his wife, wondering if he knew her at all, if if his life had even, if his life with her had been worth it, and then discovering a possibility that she had been unfaithful. Um, and so he decides to go on this great adventure to somehow get revenge by being unfaithful in in a way that he has yet to discover. Uh, this reminds me a bit of you taking off your glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Once yeah. again, to, so you can replace the world, the actual world, with what you would prefer to uh, imagine is out there. Well, it's also like putting on your glasses, uh-huh. you know? Oh, exactly, yes. Yeah. Well, that at the... At the end, yes, you do put on your glasses, yeah. and and uh, it's less than. Uh, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard reckoning with everything that you've ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, and I well, I guess maybe that's a lot of what this book is. It's it's a reckoning mm-hmm. for, uh, in a way, I think for twentieth century literature, which is you know we have. Such an escapist literary and artistic world right now where um, it seems to consist of uh, bigger and bigger um, buildups of how great we are. Yeah. (laughs) Where while in reality we're digging our – we're really great at is digging our own grave. Yeah. Or building alternate realities online. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
that won't do us a whole heck of a lot of good when the power goes out. I guess that's true. The power will go out, too. This yeah. is why I'm not on social media. I mean, it's like I need to get to know myself in a dark room, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you so you don't have a Twitter account or Facebook? No, I don't. Oh, really? No. That, I thought that was a uh, du jour for uh, writers these days. Well, you know, I got really lucky. My publicist, my publisher, never asked me to do anything on social media. And, in fact... I think not being online has done more for me. Just the fact, like the the exotic fact that I'm not online, has made me more interesting than if I had been online tweeting stupid stuff. Well, that uh, way, the, it, again, one once again, in reverse, your audience is taking off its glasses, not even really permitted to see. Yeah, we're <laughs> yeah. just yeah. gonna project. Oh, oh, Tessa. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm extremely. I, mean, I do a lot of interviews, and I'm get it like extremely candid, mm -hmm. and I probably say more than I should. Well, you know? I think that's true of your books. I mean, your books. Yeah. There's a. Uh, I mean, this is the most candid writing uh, that I've read in quite some time, and I would say there's more truth and reality in this than there is in a good deal of uh, nonfiction, or at least as much. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment. Thank I mean, you. this is you. I think that if people wanted to know what it was like to live in the late 20th century, they could read Homesick for Another World and Eileen and yeah. get a good gutful of what America is like for the majority of Americans. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you guys should do that. <laughs> now, uh, the the final uh, piece in this uh, collection, Homesick for Another World, which is essentially a, a, a alternate title for for mm -hmm. for this book, uh, Story in Another Place. Talk that's a, has a a slightly different feel, but it's one you handle very well. Um, it's almost Kafka esque. Mm. Yeah, the story is called A Better Place, and um... You know, I think I, I, what what the title brings up is death, uh, like right away, mm -hmm. right? You know, he's in a better place, or da da da. Um, and yeah, so this is the story that happens in this kind of imaginary zone of I don't know some non-history, non-place. It's vaguely Eastern European. And it's it's a little bit of Hansel and Gretel. It's a little bit of The Wizard of Oz. What made you decide to do that? That's so, so different from your normal tack. Well, I knew that there was one last story I needed to write in the collection. And as the collection had gone on, it took me four or five years to write these stories. And I wrote them very deliberately as a collection. Mm -hmm. and, okay, that's and, interesting. Yeah, and I, mean, I was trying to answer certain a certain question what question well you know the question shifted as i wrote the stories mm -hmm. and i think at the beginning it was like the question was something like how can i how can i continue to be myself and not hate it and then it was what does the world have that i am not seeing that's going to make life not just tolerable but fascinating and then it was how can I, how can I love myself in a world that is so painful and honest and 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 awful, 
And then finally, in this last story, A Better Place, the question was, if I knew that there was, a, there was a better place for me to live, you know, we could take that really literally. Like, should I move to Chicago or should I die? Or should I, you know, take drugs that, that send me into a different dimension or go s- work with a shaman or whatever? And, I, and so if there was a, another place to be and I knew it was going to be better, would I go or would I stay in the reality that I know that I'm attached to, where I have complicated, loving relationships. So it's about the, this twin, these twins, brother and sister. And the sister has... The, so the two of them have come up with this theory. They know that they're not from this world, that they're from another place, and they don't know exactly what it is. But they have a theory that you can get back to that other place and there's two ways to do it. The first way is to die, and they don't like that idea. And the second way is to kill the right person. There's just one right person that you can kill. And if you kill that right person, upon their death, a hole will open up in the ground, and you can jump down through the hole back to the better place. So it's this very literal metaphor for, uh, like, you know, just just if you if you can destroy the thing that is making your life miserable, then you can jump. You you will be liberated and and will be living in a new world. Um, but in order to do that, you would be abandoning your brother. So, it's a goodbye story, really, mm-hmm. and it's a decision story. Which do I want? Do I want? Do I want out? You know, and to be alone, or do I want to stay in and like see see what happens when I'm vulnerable and troubled and 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 in love? You know, the energy and the power and the unknowing aspect of decisions are really seriously underrated. We're constantly making decisions. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. The fa- We like to think and we like to present to the world that there's no effort making in this. And we always know. I always know exactly what I'm going to do. We always, nobody has any clue what they're going to do, really. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things your stories and your novel, and I'm guessing the novella too, address quite well is the just how much energy and how much time and how much of yourself you can waste just trying to make a decision to do something mm-hmm. that you know you're going to have to do anyway. Yeah. Well, let's say like 90% of life is procrastinating. <laughs> but that's but the, but that's okay. Uh-huh. You know, like that sitting around or or delaying something like you're, that's your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I I spent, you know, I'm 35 now and I think up until I was like 33, I still thought that my life was something that I was going to get later. I was like, oh, when I, you know, like once I have all that, like then I'll then I'll feel like that's my life. Mm. And then and then one day it was I don't know what exactly happened, but I was like, oh no. This stuff, this is actually happening. This is my life right now. This is it. And it's always been it. It isn't the thing in the future. It's right now. You know? It's the book you've written, not the book you're thinking about writing. Well, it's both. 
if you're thinking about the next book, you're in the next book too. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, as a writer. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, do you think you will? What What are you working on now? Um, I just finished another novel. Okay. Can you tell us about it a little? Um, I can say that it's called My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is a very tongue-in-cheek title. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and it um, it takes place in New York City the year before 9-11, and it's about a woman who attempts to hibernate for a year. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw There was a show called Erie, Indiana. No. Uh, it was kind of made by Joe Dante, the guy who did Gremlins. It was kind of oh, cool. a, a kid's kind of supernatural show. And one of the one of the episodes featured a mother who wanted to keep her kids forever children, and she put them in forever wear. Oh, my or God. Like these giant Tupperwares, which oh you keep your kids forever. So, <laughs> that's what that made me think of, is you wanted to put yourself in forever wear so you could... Mm. Some of your character could start the year the same way as she ends it. Well, actually, the, same person. the character is hibernating in an attempt to become a new person. Oh, okay. With the theory that if you sleep long enough, your cells will regenerate enough times that they will have detached from whatever traumatic memories that they've been carrying around. Mm. So she hopes to wake up to be a new person. Okay. Not a preserved person. Ah, okay. Because uh, yeah. she's hoping all, that all the skin cells that fall off her in that year will take away all her bad memories. Yeah, and all of her psychic angst. A- angst. Yeah. As opposed to perhaps, say, reassemble in a corner into some kind of ghost of herself. Well, maybe that happens. <laughs> maybe that happens. You guys will have to read the book. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Uh, um, have has uh, Eileen's been optioned for a movie? Is that moving forward? As far as I know, there's an incredible screenwriter working on an adaptation of the script, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's all I've got. I, they, it, yeah, I'm just waiting to hear the news. Of, I hope it gets made. I want to see Eileen on screen. I I think it could be amazing. I mean, uh, whoever got to play Rebecca would really have. <laughs> I think uh, quite a bit of fun. And yeah. I guess this, when you write, do you want to, do you think about your characters? I mean, I can still think of Eileen out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Do you like think about your characters after you leave them behind and think, wow, I hope, uh, I hope Eileen's happy? <laughs> That's a cute question. Um, I do feel, I did feel that with Eileen, mm-hmm. but some characters I just know are hopelessly they're they're not okay, you know, and that's hard. That's hard. I mean, but it's it's reality. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there are people in my life who have sp- I've wasted a lot of time not wasted, but just being like, oh, they're gonna be fine. And the truth is, no, they're not. They're in a lot of pain. There isn't a magic cure. It isn't just finishing the story. People are screwed up, and their lives can suck. And nobody is nobody knows how to help them. And that's true for a lot of us. And it's very, it's painful to just accept that. The new book by Otessa Mosfeg is Homesick for Another World. Thank you for joining me, Otessa. Thanks for having me.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.